Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. Write a review, share with a friend, subscribe, help us grow. Today in the booth, we got returning champ Mike Hardaway, who was a former Obama staffer and a current tech entrepreneur, but still super plugged into DC. Today, we discuss the Gavin Newsom recall election. Uh, we talk about the infrastructure bill that Biden and the Dems were able to pass. And lastly, we get into the exit from Afghanistan and all that will result from it. So kick your feet up and enjoy. The conversation around Afghanistan is interesting because I feel as though we're lacking the proper context in terms of the way it's being covered. You know, we're basically at the stage where we're blaming the firemen for showing up to a fire alarm fire and not putting the fire out fast enough. But we got to have a larger conversation about the arsonists, how the fire became that large, and all the things in that conversation. And, you know, if you take back, take another step back and look at Afghanistan. This story of the U.S. invading Afghanistan is one that's been had since all the way back to 330 B.C. with Alexander the Great. And, you know, you've got an empire. They try to invade Afghanistan in some capacity, and it never really works out. And, you know, the Russians found that out, obviously, and a number of other countries as well. And I think that, you know, when you look at the way the U.S. entered this war, um, it could have been executed much better than it has been. We invaded Afghanistan. We then went to Iraq uh, a year and a half or so later. And we, we took much of the resources out of Afghanistan and we took them over to Iraq. We took our eye off the ball. The war wasn't executed well. And the other thing no one is talking about is, you know, you've got all of these mercenary armies like Blackwater that got billions of dollars in contracts to execute this war that our troops should have been doing. And so you basically have 20 years of, we spent $2 trillion, Congress has neglected its job and oversight of that war. And we're now in a situation where you've got 23-year-old reporters telling us that Joe Biden failed because he pulled America out of a war, that there was no way you could have withdrawn from Afghanistan and had any different scenario than you have right now. Now, there are people that are going to say, you know, you could have left a certain number of troops or you could have done this or that. And the reason that Monday morning quarterbacking doesn't work is that, A, you would have had more casualties from the U.S. side. And two, again, you spent over $2 trillion. So the question is, how much do you want to spend? How much debt do you want to pile on for a war that presumably could go on for decades? And so I think I think the reality is that Biden's decision was the right one. You've spent over $2 trillion. And if you stayed there any longer, you're going to have significant casualties in terms of the number of troops that are trying to execute this exit um, on behalf of the U.S. And most importantly, you've got over 80,000 people that have been evacuated thus far. And the people I've spoken to this week in the White House think that we'll quickly reach 100,000 and beyond. 
with no casualties in that regard. And so if you watch the news, if you read the news, you'll see all of these human interest stories. You see photos of people chasing airplanes. You see photos of Afghan babies. But if you look numerically at where we are, they've evacuated over 80,000 people in a matter of a few weeks with no casualties on the U.S. side. And that is a miracle. So, Mike, you brought up uh, the thing about the mercenary armies. And obviously, I would, uh, you know, if you're on Twitter, there's always people saying, you know, wh- whatever war we're in, it's all about the money. It's all about the people we're paying out. That's why we're there. I mean, how much credence do you give to that? I mean, I definitely agree with you that people made out like bandits. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm no fan of George Bush. But I do think that, you know, many neocons and, and people like that have that same and no knock on Christianity, but Christian missionary fervor that they are doing the right thing in some capacity. And it might be totally against what you think, but that is like what they want to do. Um, you know, spreading this like democracy Bible. Um, how do you react to that? There once was a senator named Frank Lautenberg, uh, who is now deceased, but he was uh, a veteran uh, and a senator from New Jersey. And he gave this compelling speech one time on the floor of the United States Senate. And he essentially said that the people who wage these wars are chicken hawks. They don't fight themselves, but they always want to send other people's children in to fight the war. And he was referring at the time to the Bushes and the Cheneys and the others. And I think that's exactly right. You're in this situation where you've got a war that's cost several trillion dollars and hundreds of thousands of lives. And it's rarely being fought by the people who are making the decisions or their family members. And in part, both of these wars essentially only happened because you had these private armies that were waging war on behalf of the country. If in any sort of other realm, you'd have a situation where you have to put together a real troop plan of soldiers to execute the war. That didn't happen here. All we did was outsource that fighting to Blackwater, which didn't exist before 2001, by the way, uh, and became a multi-billion dollar company and a number of other mercenary armies. I would also say to you that I've spoken to Marines that have been over there and they've said, it's unfair that I'm making X amount of money and I'm fighting next to a mercenary who's making five times more than I am. And I think that's the other dynamic where these guys are all fighting the same fight, but the benefits are different. And there was significant fleecing and war profiteering from these private mercenaries. And that is a conversation that has never really been had at a congressional level, which sort of takes me to my next point, which is, you know, members of Congress now have so much to say about Afghanistan and what's being done. And many of them have said nothing over the past 20 years. They've completely behaved as though there was no war going on in Afghanistan. They didn't want to address the AUMF, which is the authorization uh, for military force that is essentially been, um, it's essentially something that has needed to be addressed for over 10 years. Congress has failed to address it. But now you have a situation where everyone is speaking out and sort of making noise about an issue that they have failed to address uh, over the past 10 to 15 years. This makes me think about, yeah, people, it's an interesting, like, I can't really put a pin in, in terms of the criticism of the right or the left. Who's who's been criticizing the exit more? Because there there seems to be this contradiction going on. 
or at least I can I can say for the left specifically around leaving, exiting, and kind of leaving a society that is going to collapse on itself. And obviously, the women are going to bear the brunt, whether it be protections or education, and leaving a society in crisis for the which you know where the Taliban took over everything in what eleven days or something. And that being an argument, a humanitarian argument for staying. But I think that that kind of flies in the face of how the left is often critiquing the right around, oh, well, we're not the world's police. We're not the world's big brother. We don't need to be intervening in every single thing. We're, we are not the, the, the Christian missionaries you know, that, we, that we, we claim to be or create the guise under to be. So it, I think there's like a fundamental contradiction there around, well, should we stay there and be the world police? Or should we have left and 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 stop intervening in in other societies and kind of stick our nose in it? You know what I mean? Do y'all see that contradiction at all? I mean, Ed, you know, I guess there's there's so many interesting. I mean, it's all it's all contradictions. <laughs> I think though the you know to be fair in all this, what a lot of people are, I you know, I do see a lens that I think or a commentary that's valid, which is a difference between like. Like the, the the people who voted for Trump wanted us out. The traditional neocons wanted us in, and clearly the neo, you could say the neolibs wanted us in because Obama was in power for eight years and that and nothing changed. I mean, things changed, but we didn't leave. Right. And I think that's where you know I'm sure when you you're getting the security files and you're seeing totally different info that we don't have, you make different decisions. But the outsider looking in it's very easy to be like, but why didn't Obama go? And why did drone strikes go up? And all these other things. So, okay, if Blackwater's so bad, why did they continue to get contracts? So, I mean, Mike, I think that would be probably the pushback. Yeah, you know, so what's interesting about what you said, Michael, is I think the reality is that the American people spent the past 15 years pretending like the Afghanistan war was not happening. And I think, and the same thing goes for the American media. And I think what that meant for Brock was that, uh, you know, Afghanistan in, in many ways is kind of a disaster and was always going to be a disaster. And I think for him, it was a function of fixing everything that was broken at home before dealing with the other stuff. And I think that obviously for the first term, that certainly was a necessity we were coming out of this, you know, great recession and all of these other things. Now, I think for the second term, it's probably a case where he just didn't, you know, it's there's no way to win that conversation. And I think Joe Biden is showing that and that Biden made the right decision. But there are still a number of people that are aggrieved at that decision. I think your point about neocons wanting to stay there is accurate. It's interesting from a Republican perspective, because that war has caused us to pile trillions of dollars of onto the deficit. And that's typically something Republicans care about, but that was never a part of the conversation surrounding the war in Afghanistan and what should have happened there. I would also say to you that we can't have this conversation without mentioning the fact that the 45th president of the United States wanted to bring a terrorist organization onto American soil for a conversation at Camp David which is absolutely insane. And I can't imagine, if you juxtapose the media coverage of, of him saying he wanted to do that with 
Joe Biden pulling out of Afghanistan, Biden has faced far more criticism from the media for pulling out of a 20-year war versus a president who wanted to bring terrorists onto American soil for negotiations. And I think, I think that, in a nutshell, is, is sort of the problem and why we are where we are, which is that you know, the guy who makes the hard decision uh, gets excoriated and sort of the guy who um, shirks that hard decision isn't really punished. And I think in part, that's where, where we are with Afghanistan and that no one wanted to make that hard decision because everyone presumed that this is what was going to happen. But in short, there's no right way to pull out of Afghanistan. And and there are dozens, if not hundreds, of humanitarian crises across the world. So if we're going to have a conversation about we should stay there because it's the right thing, okay, let's talk about Tigray and parts of Ethiopia. And let's talk about many, many parts of Central Africa and South America and all these other places where atrocities and genocides are happening. If we're talking about what the right thing to do is, we can have a larger conversation about being the world's police. But that's not really what we're interested in. Right. Or we could talk about we could go back to talking about Palestine and, and how we're, you know, aiding the Israeli state that oppresses them, which we quickly moved on from in order to talk about Afghanistan. So many just crises a- across the world that we are actively intervening in or, you know, previously in- intervened in to-, to cause instability. Like it just goes on and on and on. Um, I wonder, you know. I did you all ever see team, uh, team America World Police? You know what? That's that's been it's been floating on Netflix, but I haven't seen, I haven't seen it for years. <laughs> it is like the dumbest, most hilarious movie, but it's it's just caricaturing us being just like assholes going around the world, blowing stuff up and saying we did it <laughs> like we're here. And, and, and it's it's such an insane caricature, but it really is quite true. Like right. we never leave a place for the most part better than we you know, entered like, well, this is my point, Vietnam. like Vietnam, right? With Like this gets compared to when we, everybody remembers like, why are we in Vietnam? LBJ, you know, decides not to run for a second term in shame because of him dropping the ball in Vietnam. And then Nixon ironically being the one that, that kind of gets us out of there. But at the time, but we, we look, we, you know, we, we have hindsight. We look back at the, uh, you know, historical documentaries or books. But at the time, was there was there uproar about like the exit strategy, you know, and, and sort of the, the real time decisions on the margin that, you know, we forget about? Is, is the same thing going to happen here? Is Biden going to be uh, lauded as the president that finally got us out of Afghanistan 10 years from now? And then we'll forget about the fact like, oh, we left weapons there that the Taliban is now using and taking social video, social media videos about, you know, unboxing them like they're pairs of Jordans, you know, are, are we going to forget about that and look back at this and, and he'll be a much lauded president <laughs> That's a the same way Vietnam, comparison. right? Yo, for real, like you said, those videos are crazy. Like it's ridiculous. I mean, maybe, but like, you know, what's interesting yeah. about, I would say to you, Eddie, I was going to say the interesting part about Vietnam and that comparison is, you know, obviously we weren't alive then, but, Americans had more skin in the game with Vietnam because there was a draft. Mm. So people Good knew point. Good point. that everyone was affected in some way. There is no draft with the Afghanistan right. war. It's like you send the people who don't have opportunities or you hire the private mercenaries. And I think, again, 
that has enabled all of us to spend the past 15 years or so focused on other things. And right, right. that's one of the, you know, I think when you talk about Afghanistan and whether Biden did the right thing, a critical part of that is that so many Americans don't feel personally impacted by what's happening. So it's easier to say we should stay there longer until X date for this when you don't have a brother, cousin, neighbor right. fighting that war. No, that's a great point. That is a huge uh, differentiator between those two wars. Well, let's let's bring it back to the home front. Um, I mean, look, at, to your point, Ed, uh, only time is going to tell and we'll just have to keep seeing what unravels. Uh, but in the interim, uh, you know, this bipartisan bill seems to be, you know, getting past progressives or uproar that it gutted it some, but it's something no one thought for the most part it was going to get passed at all. And at the end of the day, we do still need meat and potatoes infrastructure. So that's one. And then I was reading this morning about, you know, Nancy Pelosi's work with this $3.5 trillion uh, budget. Uh, so Mike, can you, you know, this is kind of sometimes the boring stuff that the American public doesn't want to think about, but these bills are what actually matter. Um, so, you know, from your side being on the Hill, I mean, how extraordinary is it that this infrastructure bill is even potentially happening? And also, sorry, just and then one one uh, second question to that is, is this going to be Biden's Affordable Care Act, like the one thing that he pulls off before we lose the majority in Congress and before he gets thwarted, you know, in every instance uh, after 2022, uh, you know, what do you think? Joe Biden could be the first president in 50 plus years to create a nationwide infrastructure program that changes our lives in the same way that Eisenhower did with the highways notwithstanding the displacement of black and brown people from their communities for those highways. And right. so it's interesting. Good asterisk. That, yes, significant asterisk. And, but it's interesting in that this could get done. Now, look, this is not a trillion dollar bill. It's more like a roughly $600 billion bill in new money versus the 2.2 that Biden originally wanted versus the three plus trillion that a lot of progressives originally wanted for this, right? So context is everything. But what I always say to people is that let's never make perfect the enemy of good. If you are in a situation where you can get enough votes to get this, you know, trillion dollar total bill done, I think you've got to move forward with it. And it looks like they're in good shape. I would never bet against Speaker Pelosi. I had this conversation on Sunday about her ability to bring moderates to the table and get them on board. And of course she was going to be able to do that because just like with the Affordable Care Act and just like with everything throughout her speakership, Pelosi can count the votes and Pelosi can get the votes. And so it looks like this bipartisan bill is going to get done and become law, which would be massively transformational for these crumbling bridges that we drive over every day. I would also say to you this three and a half trillion dollar Budget, you know, it looks good. I would say to you that when it gets to the Senate, it probably runs into some trouble and may become smaller uh, than you're looking at now. But I think it also has a chance to pass on a much slimmer margin. Uh, but I would say to you that both of these bills are needed. And it looks like the bipartisan bill gets done. And there's a reasonable chance that the three and a half trillion dollar bill becomes law as well. With the infrastructure bill, I just, how, 
it may be, I, I haven't actually read it, but with the federal funds that go into infrastructural projects in the states, how exactly is it then handed over to the states where the states dictate how they want to use it? You know, or does it have strict earmarks on particular budgets? Because if not, like this is just could very easily go the same way uh, you talked about Hardaway around Eisenhower's highway projects and even FDR's New Deal, where this this big federal program that's meant to be indiscriminate, but then the states do what they always do and allocate that money in particular ways that end up creating or steepening segregation, inequality um, at the state and local level. You know, mm -hmm. are there checks and balances against this just happening again, as it has over and over and over again uh, in the past? I would say to you that no infrastructure bill gets done unless it's done in partnership with governors. And, you know, Biden has had several meetings with governors at the White House surrounding this specific issue. And so without having read the bill, because luckily I'm not in that business anymore of having to read every single bill, but being familiar with what's in it, I would say to you that I am certain it works in partnership with the governors who have significant decision-making ability in their own states. And knowing how Biden operates, he wouldn't move forward unless it had that structure. The, the bad reality about Washington is that bill doesn't become law without the buy-in from those governors who have conversations with these senators to vote for the bill. So if you did have a real top-down approach where the federal government said, okay, we're gonna have these parameters in place and we're really gonna control it and not let governors control it, you probably don't get enough votes to actually pass the bill. It's the circular insanity of Washington politics, but that's probably what we're looking at here. Right, I, I don't, I don't mean to be skeptical, but even you don't even have to go back to the 1930s and 40s to point to precedents where she can go sideways. Even as we just mentioned, Obama's ACA, right? The administration you worked for, which required the states to expand Medicare, or is it Medicaid? I always forget the two. Um, Medicaid, yeah, Medicaid. Yes, right, eight, okay, yes. Uh, it's Medicaid. So which required the states to expand Medicaid uh, which all of the states did not. And coincidentally, it's disproportionately um, the states of the old Confederacy. And it resulted in Black people not being covered under the ACA, uh, for which, it, you know, they were a big reason why Obama created um, that bill. So it was, it, you know, and so it just kind of, again, this, this sort of this loophole that the states created um, was just sort of big enough for the majority of black folks who still live in the South to just fall through um, and not get covered by, you know, this federal bounty of resources. Could it, you know, I, it, I don't know if it, I think it could just definitely happen again in some way. I would say to you, what's possible is advocacy organizations like the Urban League and NAACP and others could work in partnership with governors to make sure that black people have a real seat at the table in terms of the contracts that come out of this bill and the resources and all those things, I think at a presidential level, you probably don't see that from this president in terms of him 
being strong-handed in that regard. But I do think there's an opportunity at the state level for the advocates to really do work and make sure that gets done. And because the other thing is that, you know, these governors work with these advocacy organizations all the time on a million other issues. And certainly when it comes to election time, they're certainly in touch with these organizations. So I would say that those same organizations to use their leverage with these governors to make sure that black people have a seat at the table, to make sure that other disadvantaged groups have a seat at the table versus the idea of saying Biden's got to get it done. I think it's actually an all hands on deck effort where everyone's got to do their part to help make sure it gets done. And those governors that don't want to do the right thing, I think there are ways that you can use your leverage if you're those organizations to make them do the right thing. This is also just a massive wealth transfer and jobs program. So who is getting the contracts, you know, what percentage need to be, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, black owned, you know, yada, yada, yada. That That's also kind of like a Captain Obvious, but I mean, literally, um, I've talked to so many real estate developers and people who are encircling <laughs> these things because they're like, this is literally going to be a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, and so we know who has the traditional inroads and the construction firms and, and whatnot. Um, so to me, that's like a very obvious provision uh, that needs to be rectified. Um, so I'm curious there. My cu- question for you, I, you're obviously uh, a very uh, stalwart fan of just the way uh, Nancy Pelosi is able to maneuver these bills. What makes her so good? She rules with an iron fist. It is well understood among House Democrats that if you oppose her, you should be prepared for the repercussions that come forward. And it's interesting, in a real way, she operates like the sort of old style politicians, mob bosses. And I mean that as a compliment in that she's in all of the details. Like she knows everything that's going on with all of her committees, with all of the members inside of her own leadership team. She knows all of the details, and she herself makes most of the decisions personally. Uh, And I think that's a throwback to the old way of doing things that had its problems, but it's also an effective way to make sure things get done. And I've seen on multiple occasions on any given bill, if you run into the speaker and you say, do we have the votes for this? She'll say, yeah, we've got 215 votes. Or so, so yeah, we've got 218 votes. She always knows how many votes she has. And so when she operates in the way that she does, she knows that she has the backing of her members. And the perfect example of that would be this three and a half trillion dollar bill. She has always said that she she would move forward with that bill in partnership with the bipartisan bill, right? And she wasn't willing to do the bipartisan bill first. Why was she able to operate that way? Because she knew that she had a majority of her caucus behind her. She knew that number of House Democrats that were supportive of the three and a half trillion dollar bill. And so for that reason, she was able to maintain her position in terms of saying, we're not doing that first. We're going to work on these two together. And I would say she's just a masterful executioner. And, you know, my perspective on her is not about Um, anything other than her being effective. She's effective at her job. And there have been other Republican speakers as well that have been effective. And I am someone who admires people who are effective at what they do. And there's no better vote counter 
and vote getter than Nancy Pelosi. Uh, looping back to, to Ed's question from the beginning, do you think that uh, the, the, the Senate and House flip at the midterm? It's interesting because, you know, historically, you know, you would say that presumably Republicans take the House and because that's the way it's operated for several decades. Uh, you know, I would say to you that we're in a period that we've never seen before in terms of like, like the Trump base and the civil war in the Republican Party. You know, I had a conversation a few weeks ago with a Republican lobbyist who was a moderate, but essentially said that his party was being held hostage by the Trump base. And they felt like they have to play to that Trump base, even though that those aren't things that they support or believe in. And I would say to you, for that reason, there seems to be a divide in the Republican Party, uh, which may cause them to not take the House back next year. Now, that being said, it's probably true that they take the House back, but it's not definitive like it would be 8, 10, 15, 20 years ago, just based on numbers. I think there are many qualitative conversations to be had about what that looks like versus the quantitative, which is what you could typically do. But there's a civil war going on in their party, which I think prevents them from being unified and really putting on a full-scale campaign in terms of trying to take back the house. Ed, hit him with the cartel. I know you want to go there. <laughs> I see the look on his face. I see the look on his no, face. No, you, you bring, I mean, you bring up a good point about the, the Civil War, right? We all see it, and you, you know, you got the, the Cheney Republicans versus the, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene Republicans or the, or the, you know, the Matt Gates Republicans, the MAGA Republicans. But there's always been, I, I think the, the left has a tendency to just homogenize the Republican Party. Um, and it's not the case. And it's, it's never been the case. They've always been, there's two factions that have always just been strange political bedfellows. And I mean, and I think that there has always been this tension here. Like, you, the, what was it, 60, 1964 Republican convention where it's like, you got, uh, is it 64? Is it 60? Jesus, I'm fucking up my, my states. But you got the, the, the Republican convention where you got Barry Goldwater uh, facing off for the nomination against Nelson Rockefeller, right? You got the Rockefeller plutocrats, capitalists versus the Barry Goldwater old Confederate party. And you really see the, the 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 tensions arise when Barry Goldwater wins out, and it's like the old Confederacy, the, the 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 MAGA faction, always wins out, or sometimes you know the the the, the plutocratic Rockefellers or the more modern Cheneys um, win out. But there's there's always kind of just been that struggle. But at the end of the day, I think that they both realize they need each other because it's a numbers game. You speak about Pelosi just knowing her numbers. This is electoral politics. It's a numbers game. And these two factions have been strange bedfellows since the party realignment after the 60s. Um, I, I don't know, you know, how can you can you keep pushing the, the, the Cheney Republicans to the edge to where they ultimately cry uncle and I don't know, leave the party to become to, to form a third party or join Democrats. Like, I don't know that that's going to happen. I, I just think it's I think the tension will continue. And. This is like to Farb's point, there's just a clear path to power. So those sort of those those cartel instincts, I think, will kick in and be like, let's just get this done so we can keep our power and our office 
and keep our malapportionment in the Senate. Like the power is there for the taking. It's just too tempting not to just grab it. It's interesting. I think I agree with that notion. And I also say that part of the issue here is that the money, the Republican money, which is moderate, sort of billionaire business guy money, it's interesting there because that just follows the power, you know, and that money is now behind the Trump base, notwithstanding whatever the policy or political beliefs are there. What I would say to you is that if Republicans were smart, and this shows you where they're going. If they were smart, they would elevate Liz Cheney to run House Republicans. They would run Tim Scott in 24, right? Liz Cheney, that's not going to happen. She's basically done. Kevin McCarthy probably sticks around as leader. Steve Scalise probably doesn't take him on, even though he could probably beat him. So to that point, I think that Trump continues to control this party into the midterms and beyond. And what does that mean for the majority of the minority? I would say that, you know, Republicans probably take the House, Democrats keep the Senate. And, um, you know, I think it's too early to look at 24. But in terms of I think you have a divide after the midterms where Republicans have a majority in the House and Democrats hold on to the Senate. But again, I think infrastructure gets done and that's the last thing that gets done for several years. Yo, so ominous. That's the la- that's the last thing. They- Enjoy it, because that's the last thing that's going to get done for <laughs> several years. I I hate to sound like a Washington curmudgeon, but you know it is what it is. Yo, I agree with that. I I um I I believe it. So, Mike, we're 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 running out of time here, but uh, we were curious to get your thoughts. Are we facing an American Brexit in California? <laughs> <laughs> this shit is crazy. The percent, the way this thing is written, it actually—I I wasn't giving it like any credence for months. Me neither. Well, listen, you have a governor with a fifty-seven percent approval rating. Fifty-seven percent. California is this insane place where people think California is a liberal state, and there are many liberals in California, but there are also many significant conservative pockets in California. The other thing you have to understand is every governor over the past 60 years has opponents have tried to recall every governor over the past 60 years, every single one. It's worked one time in 2003 when Arnold Schwarzenegger became governor. So every governor over the past 60 years has dealt with this. It's been effective once with a millionaire actor who everyone knew and loved. And so the idea that Gavin Newsom, 57% approval rating is going to lose to a TV judge or whatever uh, Mary Elder is. I don't think that's going to happen. But I will say that this is a function of one thing. It's a function of the insane laws that exist in California, where you only need 12% of voters to sign on for a challenge. In most other states, it's 25, right? So half, you need half the amount of buy-in from voters in California to get this done, which is why you've seen it with every governor over the past six years. I think Newsom survives, but I think California has a look at changing that arcane system. I will say the uh, the conservatives and even the moderates have done a really great job of whipping up the frenzy of 
two things. One, the homeless apocalypse, which is to certain degrees, I mean, it is a real problem, but the, the just amplification of it in the major cities as LA and San Francisco. And two, you have two, you know, very progressive mayors in Chesa and um, George Garcon and the, the nonstop thing as I see on Twitter in my sphere of that there's nonstop robberies, looting, stealing, shoplifting, and all these crooks are just still on the street and no one's prosecuting them and we're not safe and yada, yada, yada. And I don't know which degree that is true, not true, um, but I've heard from many even moderate Dems like, this place is going to hell. It's like blah, 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 blah. I mean, everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid and I get it. It's like, you know, if you're some like white NIMBY hanging out in Venice, like there, it is tent city in LA. Like you can get like a little blip of it and, and then inform your entire worldview. Um, but they are playing those two issues very, very effectively, whether you agree to that or not. No, I think you're right. It, it's the ultimate irony that, these people are trying to elect someone who believes in all of the issues that are creating those problems. So for instance, climate change. In many parts of California, it's dark or black in the skies because of climate change. Larry Elder doesn't believe in climate change. Okay. Rampant homelessness and income disparities throughout the state that cause those issues in terms of crime and in terms of homelessness and, and tent cities. Larry Elder doesn't believe in the social programs that can help those people. So it's the alternate irony, by the way, that they want to elect a guy who would facilitate or exacerbate all of those issues that exist that they seem to have an issue with. Yeah. The, that being said, most people outside of a, a progressive group and that's so a counting. He also has a, I'm sorry. He also has a terrible haircut, by the way. Oh, no, he, Larry Elder is a full-on clown, so let's we can keep that a hundred. But yeah. the, the majority of people just want the police to shovel the, the homeless people away. That, that, like, let's be honest. Outside of like a progressive group, most people are totally fine with just everything being cleared out of their way, and it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind, hoping that somewhere, some way, someone is doing something with them that's of a positive right, but like as long as it's not in their eyesight, that's fine. And I agree, look, I'm not for 10 cities. I think they're hyper problematic uh, in a lot of ways, but I'm also not for police just trashing all of these people's like only possessions. Um, and it's something we've talked about, but you know, most people don't give a shit is really what it comes down to. Uh, and I think people are at this point, I don't know, I think, even the richest people, people are just like anxious and frayed over the past year and a half. And, you know, whether that's a good excuse or not, that's just the truth of the matter. You know, mental disorders are like through the roof and people's anxiety and mental health. And I think, you know, you're walking around and you see a homeless person, this or that. And, you know, I was at lunch yesterday. I had four people come up to me, you know, while I was eating lunch. And like, I feel sad. It's like the reality that so many of these people have been hurt even more. Um, but some people just want it out of their out of their face. The both of you are so you, both of you are such optimists, though. And here's why you're, you're describing it as <laughs> if you're, you're, descri you're describing it as if the, uh, the California Republican electorate would approach 
uh, you know, the the election or, or uh, you know, potentially electing Larry Elder by evaluating the merits of policies. And then you're pointing out the inconsistencies of, well, Larry Elder doesn't believe in climate change or he doesn't believe in the social programs that would alleviate, you know, houselessness. Um, but is maybe that's not what's going on. Maybe is it this larger power play, right? And it may be like a, a triple trick bank shot to do it, but it's like you get the you get the Republican governor in there who can then appoint a potential Senate seat, right? These other things, right? It's it's like these these very elaborate paths to get more power nationally. Is it actually that? Or is it, oh no, we just feel like we want to, uh, we, we, we actually feel like Newsom is not the right governor. We want to get a Republican in there for just gubernatorial sake of, of California. Like which, you know, it, which one is it? Is it, this, is, this, is it this larger power play or is it like the, on the merits of, of, of governorship in California? Well, you're talking about two different groups, right? I agree that the concern, like Republican elites are thinking that way. But I'm saying that everyday person who's not in the political sphere, who's a business owner or a tech bro or whatever, they just want the fucking just people who aren't them out of their face, <laughs> you know, and and like they want a more like intense police force. Like that's really this is like a counter to that. They want this is the law and order kickback that always happens. Gotta love it, the law and order kickback. Yeah, and, and Eddie, let me see if I can balance out our optimism with some pessimism here. I think <laughs> to answer your question, I, and I've not studied this closely, but what I imagine is you probably have two to three Republican billionaires that are bankrolling this entire effort in the same way they did the Tea Party that was an artificial movement. And so those people that are bankrolling are thinking, we get him in the governor's seat, he can appoint a senator, they're thinking from that perspective. But the people who are on the ground, who are the puppets of the operation, are just the Trump people that keep reading all this stuff about how Newsom has to go, and they're involved. And so I think these two parties are, th are thinking separate mm. things, even though they're aligned, which I think is kind of in partnership with what you said about 10 minutes ago. But it, it's it, there are two separate parties playing the same game with, with sort of different objectives. Okay. All right. I rock with that uh, distinction. And, you know, it's interesting because I think on the Democratic side, the sad thing is we don't do that enough. You know, in some way, Democrats are purists too often. And so they don't say, what is our goal? I'll work with the guy I don't agree with if we have the same goal. I think Republicans do a much better job of doing that than we do, which in the end gets them, you know, control of state houses throughout the country and all of these other things that really matter at a grassroots level. And, and so I think that's something that we have to reconcile with, not to say that we should fight for things we don't believe in, but I think we should do a better job of looking at the larger picture and saying, what do we want to get done and who can we work with to get that done? It's nice when you don't have 97 different factions and you basically just care about <laughs> taxes, Yo, I was law just going to say that. And I was like, just going to say guns. No gays. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that. Is, is, can the Democrats <laughs> not do it because they're fundamentally heterodox and have factions on factions on factions and they're actually stitching together coalition, whereas the Republican Party is just is so homogenous from a, you know, from an, from, you know, uh, an, an ethnic and, and socioeconomic, well, not, 
not homogenous in terms of the socioeconomic background, but um, from some real identity-based um, standpoint to where um, even though there is the tension between those two factions, is it just easier for the Republicans to do versus like Farb said, the Democrats is like, you're already, we already stitching together a really huge precarious coalition to begin with. So then it's kind of, you're already starting out from a, com uh, you know, from a compromise uh, um, uh, uh, position. I think that's probably true. I would say to you that a good example of this conversation is criminal justice reform. And, you know, the First Step Act, which we passed into law a few years ago, but started under President Obama in the second term. And, uh, you know, we had several meetings with, with activists and groups that wanted real criminal justice reform, right? That's great. Let's do it. What we said to them is we don't have the votes for, for this full package that you want. So let's take something incremental progress that we can keep building on versus getting nothing because we don't have the votes for this larger package. And what those activists said to us was, no, 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 we don't want that. We'll wait until President Hillary Clinton comes into office next year and we'll get the full thing that we want. And we saw what happened there, right? You can't bet on what's going to happen in the future. You take what you can get now. And that's what ended up happening when we passed the First Step Act in the law several years later. But it's the larger point of we could have done something then. The purists didn't think it was sufficient, so nothing got done. And I think if you look at the other side, for whatever reason, it's easier for them, it's simpler for them. They seem to be better at taking what they can get and then making that incremental progress. And I think if you look at guns, that's a perfect example of them being able to do that. Yeah. Well, that's the last word, I think. But that's literally it. And I like, I like that in the sense of you got to take what you have in the moment because you can't predict the future. I think that says so much about the game. Um, Mike, appreciate you as always. Uh, great having you back. Uh, let's do more of this. Um, and we'll see everyone next week. Yes, sir. Thank you both for having me. For sure, brother. Peace. Peace.